The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Dead to the Law, Married to Christ. Dead to the Law, Married to Christ. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So praise the Lord this morning, we are back in our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, where Paul, in this section of the letter, is continuing to address uh, the presence now of ongoing sin in the life of a Christian. In dealing with the presence of ongoing sin in the life of a believer, Paul now is drawing a clear distinction between the lost sinner who is enslaved to sin and the saved believer who by faith has been united to Christ and freed from slavery to sin. Does this sound loud to you all? Okay, I don't want to to blast anyone out through the speakers. It just sounds loud to me for some reason. Maybe my ears are clearing up. (laughs) I'll ask the guys to edit all of that out, that little aside. You can edit that out. Thank you. Paul's drawing a distinction. He's drawing a distinction between the lost sinner enslaved to sin and the saved believer who by faith has been united to Jesus Christ and freed from slavery. The one who's been set free from dominion to sin. He's drawing this distinction between the one who is dead in trespasses and sins, under the rule of sin, under the reign of sin, under the dominion of sin, And he's drawing a distinction between that person and the one who is alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord, right? The one under the rule and reign of grace, the one who is set free from the dominion of sin, no longer under the penalty or the power of sin and progressively being set free from the presence of sin. Between those two people, between those two camps, so to speak, there is a massive distinction. Uh, To use the word the kids are using today, it's a distinction of epic proportions, right? It's epic. (laughs) We're talking about people who live in two different realms, right? Citizens of two different kingdoms. One light, the other darkness. One righteousness, the other one unrighteousness or lawlessness. One is of Christ, the other is of Belial. Two different people, two different camps, different hearts, different spirits, different desires, different affections, different hopes, different lives, different destinies, right? Different masters. And despite those who would attempt to make little of the gap between the two, that gap is not little, right? They would excuse an ongoing pattern of sin with a cloak like carnal Christianity, Or they would excuse an ongoing, unchallenged, unbroken pattern of sin with a cloak of cheap grace or Catholic sacraments, antinomianism, essentially, right? Lawlessness. The two positions, although they attempt to bridge the gap between the two with such excuses, the two positions couldn't be any more different. To use another word being overused today, the two positions are radically different. The difference is radical, right? One enslaved to sin and rushing toward death and hell, the other freed from sin, freed from sin's dominion, a slave of God, a slave of righteousness, bearing fruit to holiness, and the end of that, everlasting life 
You see, the two camps, the two people couldn't be any more different. Now, Paul has been drawing the distinction between these two people, if you will. He's been drawing this distinction between these two camps by answering the objections of an imagined interlocutor. Okay? Paul, this person might say, you say that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, grace superabounds. Well, Paul, if that's true, then shall we not simply continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, the thought, that thought is absurd to Paul, as we've found. He answers, may it never be. How can we, who have died to sin, live any longer in it? In other words, the one who has put faith in Jesus Christ for salvation has been united to Jesus Christ through faith, and because Christ has died to sin once for all at the cross, we, who are united together with him through faith, have died to sin in him. Our old man crucified, that our sin, the body of our sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We're dead to sin. We've been raised in union with him to walk in newness of life. Sin, the reality of it, the reality of it, though your experience may sometimes appear otherwise, the reality of it is sin no longer has dominion over us because we are not under law, we are under grace. Well, Paul, you say, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Well, if that's true, Paul, shall we not simply continue in sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Can't we keep on sinning? And Paul essentially says, look at your life, brother. Look at your life, sister, Christian. God's grace has not only delivered us from the wrath to come, look at your own experience as a Christian. His grace has, in this life, delivered us from former enslavement to sin. It's not an unbroken, unchallenged pattern of ongoing sin in the life of a, a lost person any longer. Now there is a challenge, isn't there? There is a fight. By God's grace, you're enabled to resist. Doesn't mean that you're going to live sinlessly perfect in this life. That's not what Paul is talking about. We're going to see that as we continue to work through Romans chapter 7. But what it does mean is that we put up a Christian resistance in the power of his spirit and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are now enslaved to a new master and being enslaved to that new master, we're after a pursuit, if you will, of holiness. Paul's words, you are not under law. Those words do not imply a disregard for the law's authority to command. Paul's words describe a Christian's freedom from the law's authority to condemn. You see the difference? Those words, you are not under law, do not uh, disregard the law's authority to command us to distinguish between right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness. Those words describe a Christian's new freedom in Christ to uh, from out from under, or freedom in Christ from the law's authority to condemn. It's a glorious freedom. The law certainly has power to distinguish right from wrong. The law certainly has the authority to dictate what is righteous and what is unrighteous. But the law has no power to produce it. The law can't produce it. Run, work, the law commands, but the law gives me neither feet nor hands, right? It can't produce it. The law is impotent to produce holiness. But Paul's emphasis has not been the commanding authority of the law, 
Paul's emphasis, as we've been seeing in the text, has been on the power of sin or the power that sin exercises through the condemning authority of the law. That's been Paul's emphasis. That power or that dominion that sin exercises through the law over those who are enslaved to sin, namely the power of death, the power to condemn, the authority to demand retribution, that power, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are no longer under that power, are no longer under that authority. Those who, are, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are no longer, in that sense, under the law. They're no longer under the law's power to condemn. Jesus Christ at the cross, by doing away with the law's authority to condemn you, by nullifying the law's demands against you, all of them nailed to the cross, right? The law now has no condemning power over you, has no power to rule. That's awesome, right, brother, sister? By Jesus Christ taking your punishment at the cross, he has ended the law's condemning authority over you. Why? It has no demand to make of you left. Its demands have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ, you see? And having no condemning authority over you any longer, the law's power Sin's power, sin, the power that sin exercises through the law has been broken. Breaking In breaking the law's power to condemn you, Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin, wielded through the law, and he's broken the power of sin now to enslave you. That power has been broken. For you who have been united together with Christ through faith, the reign of sin has ended. The reign of sin has ended. You are no longer under the condemning authority of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You are under the reign of God's grace. You see? That's a, a dramatic, that is a distinction of epic proportions, right? A massive distinction. Now, on the one side, think with me. It's clear that Paul intends to answer the imaginary objector, right? It is absurd and even impossible, Paul would say, that the true Christian who has been placed in union with Jesus Christ can then continue to live in an unbroken, unchallenged pattern of ongoing sin in the Christian life. I choose those words carefully because we sin, don't we? We sin, we are sinners, there is remaining corruption in our flesh, remaining corruption that we as Christians will continue to deal with on this side of eternity. That's a reality. That's a reality. But it's impossible. It's impossible for a Christian, one who has genuinely put true and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's impossible for that one to live in an unbroken, unchallenged, pattern of ongoing sin in their life. It's not going to look it's not going to look any longer like an unbroken, unchallenged pattern of ongoing sin in their life. Right? Their relationship to sin is now broken. <laughs> there is active resistance against sin. Sin is going to be challenged. Temptation is going to be challenged. That pattern has been interrupted. 
And the longer that one continues to pursue holiness in the power of the Spirit, in dependence upon God, the more that one is going to see victory in the Christian life, the more and more progressively they're not only going to be freed from the power or the penalty of sin, they're going to progressively be freed from the presence of sin. It's called sanctification, okay? It's simply inconsistent with all that God has done for us by his grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's simply inconsistent uh, for a Christian to continue to live that way. Now, on the other side, listen now, Paul's primary intention in drawing this distinction between the two camps is not, is not so that those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation would despair over the presence of ongoing sin in their life. You hear what I just said, right? Paul's intention in drawing this distinction is not to put you, brother, you, sister, back under the condemnation of the law as though the law has the power or the authority to condemn you. Paul's intention in the text is not that you would despair over the presence of ongoing sin in your life. It's not that you would wallow in self-examination or wallow in introspection, looking at yourself right? It's not that you would be, Paul's intention is not that you would be paralyzed with fear that you are somehow still enslaved to sin, wrecking yourself with grief. I am embattled over my sin and wrecked with fear and wrecked with grief that somehow this sin is still dominating me, still enslaving me. It's not Paul's intention to put you back under the condemnation of the law. We've been set free from the condemning power of the law. We are to live in our freedom. We're to rejoice, brothers and sisters, in our freedom. It is a matter of fact for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's intention is not that you would despair. What is Paul's intention? Paul's intention is not to call you to introspection, to look at self. Paul's intention is rather that you would look to Christ. That's Paul's intention, right? The distinction that Paul has masterfully argued is for the purpose of calling you to faith in him. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants you to take these glorious truths that we've been taught, embrace them through faith, take God at his word and believe him for what he's said, and pursue holiness through faith. Pursue holiness by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of his spirit, right? To pursue freedom from slavery to sin, to pursue the freedom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ to obey righteousness, right? To pursue obedience to our other master, <laughs> having been justified by faith, Romans chapter five, verse one, right? Having been justified by faith, having been justified, we have present ongoing peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now, through Jesus Christ, we also, brothers and sisters, have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Do you see? We are to lay hold of these precious realities. We're to lay hold of them through faith in Jesus Christ and we are to fight against sin. Not to present our members, the faculties of our souls 
as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but rather we're to present our members as instruments of righteousness to God. Reckon yourselves then dead indeed to sin and alive to God in union with Jesus Christ. Exercise faith and fight, right? Exercise faith and fight. Sin will not have dominion over you. Sin will not. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Our faith. Paul says that the promise of God is given through faith so that our salvation would be all of grace. Right? The promise of God is given through the means or the instrumentality of faith so that the promise would be all of grace. Our salvation would be all of grace. And it is all of grace so that it might be sure, might be certain to all the seed, all those who share the faith of Abraham. Do you believe that? And we need to live like it, right? We need to live like it. Live in that kind of freedom. Live in that kind of victory. Live in that kind of joy. Live in that kind of hope. It is, brothers and sisters, it is certain. It is sure. Name it and claim it, right? (laughs) You want to do that. Now's the time to do that, right? (laughs) The promise of God. Name it and claim it. All right. Paul then says, having established all of that, Paul says, I want to go back now and I want to clear up this matter of the law. I want to go back and I want to clear up this matter of a Christian's relationship to the law. And doing that, Paul is going to further encourage us along the same line, okay? And this is important. This should change the way that you think. Change the way that you think about your sin Change the way that you you believe, change what you believe, and changing what you think, changing what you believe should change how you live, should change how you conduct yourself, right? Lay hold of this by faith. You can disregard the change from chapter 6 to chapter 7 in your Bibles. Paul would say, I didn't put those there, okay? (laughs) We're continuing now along the same line of thought. It's all connected. That statement in verse 14, you're not under law but under grace, That statement needs clarification. So Paul says, let's clear up this matter of the law. Now, Paul is going to address the relationship of the Christian to the law. He begins doing that in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, in a text that I've planned for us to consider under four headings. Four headings, right? As we've grown accustomed to, Paul begins with a statement of a principle in verse 1. It's a statement that Paul intends to use to make his point, okay? He continues with the illustration of that principle in verses 2 and 3, with the application of that principle in verse 4, and then an explanation of that principle in verses 5 through 6. Okay? Note first, Paul's statement of the principle in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, the Apostle Paul expects us to be thinking people, okay? Thinking people. He's going to build an argument on a principle that we should easily understand and easily connect if we're thinking, right? Or do you not know, brethren? In other words, this is something we should know. (laughs) We cannot stumble around in ignorance, 
We cannot, as so many professing Christians today, stumble around in theological ignorance, in biblical ignorance, in biblical illiteracy. We need to understand what is being taught here. Because through what is being taught here, we know God. And we know our Lord Jesus Christ, and we come to understand how we are to live. Okay? We can't continue to stumble in ignorance. Paul says, I'm speaking to those, verse 1, who know the law. Who know the law. The Jewish Christians at the church in Rome would certainly have been described as those who know the law. They were raised in the law. They were instructed uh, out of the law, out of the Old Testament scriptures is what Paul is referring to here. But Paul isn't only referring to Jewish Christians in Rome. Paul is referring to Christians in Rome, okay? He calls them, Jew and Gentile alike, he calls them brethren. Now, the brethren in Rome, the brethren in Rome know the law. We could say the same of the brethren here. We're familiar with the law. We know what the law says. We're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. We're familiar with the law of God. So Paul, when Paul uses that term law, isn't merely referring to the law of Moses. The illustration that Paul's going to refer to in this, te- in this text is the law of marriage. Marriage didn't begin at Sinai, did it? No, marriage began at creation. And so this isn't the law of Moses exclusively. This is the law that began at creation. It's a creation ordinance. So it's a law that we're all familiar with. And this principle then, being a law that we're all familiar with, should make sense to us. You could say, paraphrasing verse 1, of course you know, brothers and sisters, of course you know that the law has dominion over a man only as long as he lives. Okay? So Paul is essentially calling us, all of us, as Christians now, to think together. We're going to meditate on some theology for a little while. We're going to take a known principle, and we're going to apply that principle to better understand our relationship to the law of God, okay? This is not merely an academic pursuit. We're not just here filling our heads with knowledge. It's an understanding that should dramatically transform how you think, and if it transforms how you think, it's going to transform what you believe and how you live. Now, think with me. Here's the principle, verse 1. The law has dominion, or the law has authority, over a man as long as he lives. Pretty simple, pretty clear, right? The law exercises its authority over living and breathing people. There are laws that apply to driving out there on Snow Hill Road, for example, okay? Those laws have authority or have jurisdiction over you while you are living and driving on Snow Hill Road. Break those laws. If you break those laws, those laws demand retribution, don't they? They have the power or the authority to demand retribution. Once you have died, those laws no longer have jurisdiction over you, do they? You're not a living, breathing person. You're not out there driving on Snow Hill Road. The demands of the law for retribution can no longer be enforced against you. Why? Because you've died, right? Pretty clear, pretty straightforward, right? Even if they prop you up behind the wheel and run you down the road, right? If somebody props you up behind the wheel, you're not going to face the penalty for that. The person who propped you up is going to face some kind of penalty for that, okay? You are no longer, you're no longer under the jurisdiction of those laws. That's the principle, right? That's the principle. Law has authority over a person 
who's living and breathing. All right. Now, Paul then illustrates this principle by referring to the biblical law of marriage. Look at verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, although she has married another man. Okay? Simple, straightforward, clear. Right? Paul is referring now, in illustration, to the covenantal relationship or the covenantal bond of marriage. In the covenant of marriage, a woman is bound to her husband by the laws of marriage for as long as her husband lives. Pretty clear. The marriage relationship is to be a permanent relationship between one man and one woman for one lifetime. Despite what our world says, that is common law, as it were, natural law, as it were, creation ordinance, the law of God, one man, one woman, one lifetime. When we um, conduct a wedding service here, uh, we refer in that wedding service to the permanence of that bond, right? The permanence of the covenantal bond as one relationship between one man and one woman for one lifetime that's, that's expressing a permanence, isn't it? We refer to the, the permanence of that covenantal bond uh, through Genesis chapter 2, and referring to Genesis chapter 2. Turn there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. That's where this is introduced, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Where in verse uh, 23, God brought the woman, Eve, to Adam. And Adam said, verse 23... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. All of that language there calculated to express a, an un breakable, inviolable, permanent relationship. One woman, one man, one lifetime, one flesh. Do you see? Now, the, the permanence of that covenantal relationship is then further codified under the law, under the seventh commandment. Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. Okay? And we see that under the law that when Israel, for example, married idolatrous women, in Scripture, they're, they're uh, described as foreign women. Uh, foreign because they were idol worshipers, right? Idolatrous women. Uh, there's an example of this in Malachi chapter 2. The Lord there in Malachi chapter 2, you can turn there with me. Malachi chapter 2, the Lord refers to the institution of marriage as the institution that he loves. And it's an institution now that Israel has profaned. So in profaning the institution now of marriage, the Lord, in judgment, refuses to acknowledge their worship. He refuses to acknowledge their worship. He will not receive worship from their hand. Look at verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? 
For what reason is the Lord refusing our worship? Because, verse 14, the Lord has been witness between you and the covenant wife of your youth. You see? That wife with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Right? The permanence of the relationship established upon the ground of a covenant. Verse 15, but did he not make them one? In other words, Israel's dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth by taking to themselves foreign idolatrous wives. And so the Lord accuses them of dealing treacherously and asks the question, the rhetorical question in verse 15, but did not he make them one? And again, language that communicates a permanent, unbroken relationship between one man, one woman for one lifetime. Did he not make them one? One flesh having a remnant of the spirit. And what that means, verse 15, is the word remnant refers to remaining or residue would be a more appropriate word. Refers to a residue, having a residue or a remaining part of the spirit. So, to, And what the, what the text is saying, verse 15, having a remnant of the Spirit means that God could have made another Eve. Having a, the residue of the, the Spirit of life, so to speak, God made them one, having the power to make more than one, but God made Adam one woman, Eve. He made them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why only one, verse 15? Because God seeks Godly offspring. Godly offspring. There's a connection there between one and godly offspring. Therefore, he says, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For, verse 16, the Lord God of Israel says, he hates divorce. It covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So even the Mosaic law, right? Even the Mosaic law refers to the creation ordinance of marriage to establish a, the permanence of the covenant, okay? How inviolable, how strong is the law that secures the permanence of that bond? Is a law expressed in God's own words, in God's own terms. It is permanent, Right? Uh, that is what the law says. Paul quotes that again in Ephesians chapter 5, a text you're familiar with, that marriage pictures the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church, his bride, the church. A relationship that will last into eternity. A relationship for Christians, the bride, to their bridegroom, a relationship that will never end. Never end. In other words... What Paul intends here is not a meaningless or a trivial illustration. It's not merely saying that, well, this is sort of like this. No, Paul's making a far deeper point than that. Paul intends to communicate something of the permanence of this relationship, the unbreakable nature of this relationship, and he uses that illustration to communicate something to us about our union with Jesus Christ. We're going to get there, okay? As significant as that bond is in the mind of God, in the heart of God, as significant as that bond is in Romans chapter 7, verse 2, 
Paul makes the point now that death severs the bond. Death severs the bond. Back in Romans 2, or Romans chapter 7. The death of her husband, verse 2, releases the woman, frees the woman from the law of marriage. She is no longer under the jurisdiction of that law. As powerful as that law is, as strict you could say, as that law is, as inviolable, as permanent, as unbreakable as that law should be, the death of her husband releases the woman, frees her from the law of marriage. She's no longer under that jurisdiction. She's no longer bound by that law. She no longer has a husband. Do you see? So then, verse 3, if while her husband lives... Assuming, of course, that her marriage has not been dissolved by any other lawful means. If while her husband lives, she marries another man, if she enters into that permanent covenantal relationship, presumably, with another man, she commits adultery. Under the jurisdiction or under the authority of the law, she is condemned under the seventh commandment and she will be treated as an adulteress. Okay? However, however, Paul's point, if her husband dies, verse 3, she's freed from the law of marriage. The law no longer has jurisdiction or authority to bind her to her husband. Her husband has died, okay? The law has no, lo- no longer has ground. The law no lo- longer has authority to condemn her for breaking the covenant. Her husband has died. So, If her husband's died then, if she goes out then and marries another man, the law has no power. The law has no authority, no jurisdiction to condemn her as an adulteress. The law cannot condemn her. Do you see? Does the law still retain the authority to command, do not commit adultery? Does the law still have the authority? Of course it does. Certainly it does. But her husband's death Frees her from the law's commanding power? No, frees her from the law's condemning power if she marries another, right? It frees her, if you will, to marry another. Now, incidentally, if you think about this with me, incidentally, this principle, this principle would apply to any lawful means by which a marriage is lawfully or biblically dissolved. The same principle would apply to any lawful reason or biblical reason for dissolving a marriage. If the divorce is lawful, then remarriage is lawful. It's a good principle, right? If the divorce is biblical, if the divorce is lawful, then remarriage is biblical. Remarriage is lawful. It's another sermon for another time. In fact, there is a sermon in the Essentials series that deals with marriage and divorce, and we talk about this particular principle in that sermon. I commend it to you. All right. Now, the only reasonable way then to interpret or to imply the illustration is by identifying believers with the woman and identifying the law with her husband who's died, right? It's the only reasonable way to interpret or to apply the illustration. In other other words, as those who are born in Adam, born under the law, we're like the woman. We are married to the law, so to speak. We are bound to the law as the woman is bound to her husband. We are bound to the law. We are under the authority of the law 
to condemn us. We are under the law's jurisdiction, okay? We're not free in that situation. We're not free from the condemning power of the law. We're not released from the law's authority to condemn us. The only way that we could be released from that authority, the only way that we could be released from that condemnation is through a death. A death has to take place, okay? We're not free until a death has occurred. Now, if Paul had intended the illustration to be parallel with Christian experience, then we would expect Paul to assert that the law is that then which has died, right? The woman married to her husband, if her husband dies, she's free from the law of marriage. You got to think with me, right? Stay in there, hold in there, with, hang in there with me. If we're applying that illustration to real life, right, we would be associated with the woman, the law would be associated with her husband who has died, setting the woman free from the law, okay? In this illustration, that's not the way that Paul applies it. We're associated with the woman, but nowhere in scripture does the Bible ever say that the law has died. Nowhere. It's not possible. Paul doesn't associate the law in that sense with the husband. By way of application, Paul clearly refers and only refers to the death of the woman, the death, so to speak, of the one who has placed faith in Jesus Christ, united to Jesus Christ in his death. Nowhere does Paul ever refer to the death of the law. Now, why is that? Because the law is not dead. The law hasn't died to believers. Believers have died to the power, the condemning power of the law. Do you see? The law is very much preserved. The law, chapter 7, verse 2, is holy, just, and good. It is the believer's delight. And in his law, they meditate day and night, right? So how do we get here then to this disjointed, if you will, um, illustration? Did Paul somehow make a mistake? No. Paul intended in the text all along to use marriage as a way of illustrating our union to Jesus Christ. We are married to him. That marriage is a permanent, unbreakable, inviolable, everlasting covenant bond. We'll never, although divorce is rampant in our culture, rampant in this world, rampant due the fall of man into sin, that relationship, brothers and sisters, will never be broken. Never. That's a, that's a joy, a joy to believers, okay? Paul intended all along to use marriage as a way of illustrating our union with Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul comes back around to the subject of human marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, he says of that relationship, I'm speaking, I'm telling you a mystery. <laughs> I'm telling you a mystery. This is a picture or an illustration or a type of the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Husbands, how ought you to treat your wives? Look at Christ and the church. Wives, how ought you to submit to and respect your husbands? Look to the church and Christ, right? He's pointing us forward to this beautiful, glorious, everlasting, permanent, unbreakable, perfect, covenantal bond. A bond that we will, will, will enjoy in eternity. Now, it's in this use of marriage to illustrate union this is where the parallelism, parallelism lies, right? It lies in the application of the principle in verse four, the application of the principle. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. You're like the woman, okay? 
you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ so that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead so that we should bear fruit to God. Paul, again, Ephesians 5, speaking of an unbreakable, permanent, new covenant union. And then Paul speaks in these terms, listen, from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, listen. Because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's how powerful our union to Jesus Christ is. How unbreakable our union to Jesus Christ is. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's figurative language there, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Herein lies the point, okay? Herein lies the point. Once Paul had determined to illustrate our union with Christ in terms of marriage, it was necessary to speak in terms of our prior covenant responsibility to the law. We have to be killed, as it were, to the authority of the law in order to be married to another. It's frankly impossible to illustrate it in any other way. An earthly marriage is dissolved by the death of either party. But in the illustration, if the woman dies, the woman's unable to marry another. She's, she's died, right? So you see the difficulty of the, the illustration. It must be the husband that dies in the illustration. In the application, the law doesn't die. The law is not the party that dies. It's the believer who dies to the condemning power of the law so that the believer might be married to another, okay? That's the way we have to take the illustration and how we have to take the application. Let's consider the application then of the principle in verse four. We're gonna continue next week, Lord willing, with Paul's explanation of the principle, Paul's explanation in verses five and six, but let's conclude with the application of the principle from verse four. Notice first with me, verse four, in the application of the principle, notice the premise. Verse four, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. Like that woman whose husband has died, you have become dead to the law. Speaks of a permanence there too, doesn't it? Dead to the law. Brother, sister, you have died to the law's authority to condemn you. You have died to the law's authority, the law's jurisdiction, the law's power to condemn you. The law no longer has jurisdiction by which it may condemn you. The law doesn't have jurisdiction to condemn you any longer. Having died, you are free from the law's power to exact from you retribution. Make sense? The law cannot demand of you a penalty or a punishment from you. Why? Because you have died. Jesus Christ took that punishment for you right? That's the present, the premise. You have become dead to the law. That's powerful. We need to be able to apply this. Second though, notice the means. Verse four, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That means, beloved, that you became dead to the law through his death. That's what Paul is saying. His body is a way of referring to Jesus Christ voluntarily offering up his body in death at the cross. Through the sacrificial offering 
of his own body in death as your substitute in your place, Jesus Christ himself paid the penalty that the law demanded from you. He paid it. He laid down his life for you. It has now been paid in full. The handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken them all out of the way, having nailed them to his cross. My sin, not the part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Right? Mm. The law has no power to condemn me. The law has no power, no authority to condemn me. I am dead to the law. Praise God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in union with Jesus Christ. Verse four, you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Third, note the purpose. Note the purpose. So that you may be married to another. (laughs) In his own death, Christ freed you from the condemning authority of the law that you might lawfully, lawfully be married to him, right? Be joined to him. Note the person in verse four, to whom we are married. Note the person, to him who is raised from the dead. To him who is raised from the dead. Romans chapter six, verse nine. Christ having been raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And we who have died to the law's condemning power in union with him, we shall also be raised together with him to die no more. And so we shall always be with the Lord. An everlasting, inviolable, unbroken covenant bond in eternity. The bride married to her bridegroom. You and I were once married to a cruel and harsh master, right? Slave master. That wicked, deplorable slave master wielded over you a severe and oppressive power. Sin was at work through that which is good, the law. Sin was at work through the law. Sin at work through the law was working to deceive you, to enslave you, to produce death in you. If you've never turned to Christ in faith, sin is wielding that power over you now. Sin is deceiving you. I've got plenty of time. I'm not that bad. God's not that mad, right? Sin is enslaving you, producing death in you. Sin working to bury you in the grave and then drop you into hell. What is the fruit of that life? What's the fruit of those things of which you are now ashamed? What was the fruit of that? Nothing. Sin, godlessness, lawlessness, wickedness, death, And Jesus Christ, the glorious, good, righteous, pure bridegroom of the church, comes to you with these gracious, merciful expressions of his love through the gospel. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
so much that he loved them to the end, to the uttermost, having died for them, bearing their sin and shame. He offers you immeasurable love. He offers you eternal life in a, a joyous, a rejoicing expression of love into the ages as he himself pours out his loving kindness up, upon you in eternity. Even now, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He calls you to come to him, all you who are weary. He is the best of husbands. The joy and rejoicing of any rational person's heart. <laughs> it's only that we are out of our minds in sin that we wouldn't see that and embrace that. Those who are in sin are insane. Verse four, what is, what is the reason then? What is the reason for this relationship? What is the, the purpose or the aim or the end of this marriage? Verse four, therefore, my brethren, you've also become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead so that we should bear fruit to God. We've come full circle, haven't we? Bearing fruit to God. Rather than bearing the fruit of sin, to death and everlasting torment, we bear fruit to our creator, God, who created us to find all of our satisfaction in him who is holy and true. We are to see our union with Jesus Christ in the likeness of his death. We're to see our union with Jesus Christ in the likeness of his resurrection. We're to see them as the means whereby we are raised to walk in newness of life. Can we sin any longer? Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? <laughs> Absolutely not. So many reasons, but lastly here, I'm married to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an absurd thought. Shall we continue in sin because we're no longer under law? Now we're under grace? Shall we just continue in sin? It's preposterous to think that way. Absolutely unthinkable. We are married to another, you see. This is descriptive of the new life which we live now in union with Jesus Christ through faith. We have died to the law now to walk in newness of life, bearing fruit to holiness in the end, everlasting life. Paul simply addresses the point again now, doesn't he? Romans chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. This time he uses the illustration of marriage. You could say, if you look at verse 22, that in addition to having become slaves of God, we who have died to the law's condemnation, having become married to Christ, we have our fruit to holiness and the end of everlasting life. Right? Now that you're married to Christ through his death, can you really continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Can you continue in sin because you're no longer under the condemning authority of the law? The thought is abhorrent. I am to say... I am dead indeed to, to sin. I am dead to the law. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. I am his, he is mine. I am of his body, of his flesh, and of 
his bones. He died to marry me to himself. A glorious church, right? Us, brothers and sisters. He's died to marry us to himself. A glorious church, a chaste virgin, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. So what are we to do? (laughs) What are we to do? We're not to present the faculties of our soul as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. We are to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin. We are to reckon ourselves dead to the condemning authority of the law. And we are to present our members, the faculties of our soul, as instruments of righteousness to God, bearing fruit to God in the power of his spirit through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's lay hold of these truths and live in the light of those promises. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, you've given us um, so much powerful (laughs) matter here to lay hold of. Uh, These weapons of our warfare, mighty, mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And we, Lord, want to wield uh, these glorious promises, these glorious truths, these glorious realities. We want to wield them in faith that we might not give ourselves over any longer to that harsh, wicked, oppressive slave master we were once enslaved to. But now, having been set free from the power of sin, having died to the law, Lord, let us turn to you in faith, presenting our members as instruments of righteousness and, Lord, fighting and resisting sin and the power of your spirit um, with faith in you for these promises, knowing, Lord, knowing, knowing, and believing without doubting that it is through faith so that it might be according to grace so that these promises would be sure to all the seed, to all those who share the faith of Abraham. Make it true, Lord, of of every person in this room. May it be to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.